Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Friday evening. We are set to continue our exploration into this call we have to uh, respond to that question, can you pray for me, with with an answer, yes, I will pray for you. Um, We have set out to come up with what amounts to be nine keys to better respond to that question, can you pray for me. Uh, And we are in our seventh key, right? We are considering this seventh key that has us praying in friendship with Jesus. Because really, my friends, praying to Jesus as friend is an indispensable key to the larger framework of praying better, right? Because it is the space of closeness where the listen-response attentiveness is at its best. Jesus speaks, we listen. We speak, Jesus listens because that is what friends do. Uh, Speaking of what friends do, as I was coming over here this evening, I was made to reflect upon C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. You know, this is part two to this topic of praying and friendship with Jesus, and uh, this is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit last week, and so I thought we should talk about it this evening. Uh, It was, oh gosh, in the summer of 2008, while studying at Oxford University, Uh, that I had the blessed opportunity to dine with a priest friend of mine, Father Walter, at the Eagle and Child pub. And we were led to reflect upon the two men who made that pub so famous, right? That that pub so renowned, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Father Walter and I talked about many things that cool summer evening in Oxford, Uh, Lewis and Tolkien's initial days together at Merton College at Oxford University, where they bonded over discussions on Norse mythology, uh, Tolkien's role in bringing C.S. Lewis into Christianity, and really their mutual critique of each other's work as members of the Inklings. And as we discussed the deep bond between the two, we were also made to reflect upon their more turbulent days as they grew older. For those of you who are familiar with the relationship, the friendship between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, you know what I'm talking about that turbulence where their sympathies of each other's work became more and more callous. Uh, In one case, Tolkien wrote of his distaste for Lewis's world of Narnia. In a letter he wrote, he says, uh, It is sad that Narnia and all that part of C.S. Lewis's work should remain outside the range of my sympathy. And he would go on, as much of my work was outside his. So you can kind of get a sense that they were going their separate ways a little bit. But Whatever discontent was there between the two literary giants, the bond of their friendship, certainly we could say, transcended time. You know, it was just a few days after C.S. Lewis's death uh, when Tolkien, writing to his daughter Priscilla, says this, So far I have felt the normal feelings of a man of my age like an old tree that is losing all its leaves one by one. Reflecting upon the death of my good friend C.S. Lewis, this feels like an axe blow near the roots. 
Very sad, C.S. Lewis says, that we should have been so separated in the last years. But our time of close communion endured memory for both of us. So there you can really appreciate how that deep bond transcended time. Incidentally, after bringing this line from Tolkien's memoirs into the discussion with Father Walter, I'll never forget the observation he made. He says, I suppose we could say that the true measure of one's friendship is how hard we feel that blow, right? Referencing the axe blow near the roots that Tolkien spoke to as it relates to C.S. Lewis's death. And, And I think that's an important line, right? Because really, that gets to the heart of what friendship is all about. What does it mean to be a friend? What did we talk about last week? Well, a friend is a person whom one knows the heart of another and shares one's heart with another. Huh? Friendship is, is built upon vulnerability, the willingness to share our heart with those whom we have come to trust. We confide in who we call friend because we are assured they will look out for our best interest and respond accordingly, right? The deeper a friendship goes in vulnerability, the deeper a friendship goes in personal entrustment, the more pronounced uh, its growth will reflect each other. As you spend time with your friend, you, what, pick up each other's habits. You grow around those dispositions. In them, you often see yourself as like in a mirror. Again, this is something we talked about last week. And so it is we call Jesus friend because we believe that he wants what is best for us. We confide in him because we trust him. But what is really radical about this call to be friends with Jesus is that he desires to be just not our friend, but our best friend, and that we go to him in that context. And as we do, and this is where we can kind of pick up with where we left off last week, we do so in proximity and silence, which is to say that my prayer is at its best when I draw near to God, literally when I go before him in the Blessed Sacrament and and maybe mystically when I contemplate the Spirit's clandestine movements in my heart. Friendships grow when they communicate in proximity. If my friend calls me on the phone and, and needs to talk, and so far as I am able, I hang up the phone and go to him. Why? Because closeness allows for, we could say, a different kind of communication. Because as you know, my friends, communication is more than just words. Communication is feelings, tone, inflection. We could even say bodily reaction. Uh, You know, social media is often absent of these existential realities, right? You know, on Facebook, we friend people we know. We have very detailed, expressive emojis that attempt to communicate an emotion that is tied to our friendship. But does that replace physical presence? No. Now, in saying this, I am no way devaluing Facebook as a means to encounter our friends, but rather just to make the point, right, that friendship calls for more than just what the digital age can offer, presence. God did not send us a text message to let us know how much he loves us. He incarnated his very being in the flesh. He literally tabernacled here on earth, as John 1.14 reminds us. He pitched his tent. God took our friendship so seriously that he let the comfort of infinite pleasure just to draw near to us, to become, my friends, more proximate to us. 
And so by virtue of proximity to Jesus as friend, we pray better, we listen better, we understand better, right? And maybe most importantly, respond better. The closer we are to Jesus, the more in tune with Jesus we will become. To pray for other on terms of friends with Christ is to pray close to him, which teaches us to pray close with those who have asked for our prayer, right? When we walk in the presence of God, we carry within us a presence, a presence that can be a source of consolation to others when we pray with them in proximity. Now, friendship prayer that is proximate also calls for silence. When are you most silent? I am most silent when I, when I am listening to my favorite songs, when I am watching my favorite movies and, and plays. And if I'm going to be honest, when I'm watching Notre Dame football uh, on the five-yard line, right? In other words, I am most silent when I am a captive audience. When I desire to behold something that is about to be said or happen, okay? We could say that silence is synonymous with beholding. It's interesting, my friends, the word behold can be found 1,298 times in sacred scripture. You think it's important? <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could say the best translation of this word might be something like, pay close attention to what I'm about to say because it's very important. So just as I'm paying close attention to the, to the piano guys, if that's what I listen to, or Russell Crowe and Gladiator, if that's what I'm watching, or again, the Notre Dame offense on the five-yard line, so should I be paying close attention to what God is going to say, and even more so. And of course, I do this best in silence. Again, silence is a virtue when we have something to say but remain in this kind of interior school of waiting. The classroom where the attentive listening teaches when to say what, if anything at all. In our prayer life, to listen is to be held captive by the one speaking revealing, pulling up the curtain, as it was, on the revelation that he wants us to behold. The more we go to Jesus as friend and attentively listen to the word of God, the more acutely we will hear his still, soft voice. Friendship prayer, my friends, is the prayer of captivity. As we probe into the importance of friendship prayer, we ought to take stock into the timing of when Jesus called his disciples friends. It was soon after Peter's confession of faith that he would speak about the necessity of the cross. While it was in this context, the cross, the second farewell discourse of Jesus, that Jesus first called his disciples what? In John 15, verse 15, but friends. From the cross, our friend Jesus says to us, this is how much I love you. Because love is physical. The sacrifice is to say with the body, I love you. And could we not say that suffering is Christ's love language? The cross is the high point, my friends, of intercessory prayer. From the actual point where the horizontal and vertical beams intersect, the God-man prays, intercedes, uniting heaven and earth offering himself as a lamb led to the slaughter for the ransom of man. And so it is from our own crosses. When we pray, 
we unite our horizontal existence with the vertical, bringing down the presence of God into the people we pray for and the circumstances that need His healing presence. Now, before we wrap up, I pose to you one last question. In what way can we be intentional in our sacrificial intercession? But by fasting. Always humble fasting is an interior penance where a person willingly deprives the body of food, nourishment, and could we not say the enjoyment of taste? Maybe turning to the Bible and the witness of saints, the penitent, when he or she fasts, now finds food, nourishment, and the enjoyment of taste in the inspired word of God and the sweet offering of the many Christian heroes of yesterday as they witness to their faith and love of Christ. We might speak to it a different way. In the spiritual physics of unitive suffering, God takes our sacrifice of nourishment, what we give up, and uses it as a redemptive act to nourish those we pray for. The person who fasts echoes the words of St. Paul to the church of Corinth with their body. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, Paul says, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Brothers and sisters, what does Tobit say? Prayer is good when accompanied by fasting. We fast because it changes things. The Ninevites repented of their evil ways with a 40-day fast, and what did God do? He spared them, as Jonah chapter 3, uh, verse 10 reminds us. Fasting changes things. In the famous story of Mordecai, Queen Esther and King Osiris, we have another example of the power of fasting. After King Osiris sent out an edict that on a set day, Mordecai and the Jews and the surrounding area were to be killed, right, because Mordecai did not pay homage to Ammon. <laughs> Mordecai sought out Queen Esther to go to King Osiris and intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. She agreed, but before the queen went before the king, what did she do? In Esther chapter 4, verse 16, she urged Mordecai to gather all the Jews in the area of Susa and to fast for three days and three nights. Esther was not going to go before the king without the interceding power of fasting. And as I think many of us know, <laughs> the fast worked because King Osiris lifted the edict and granted mercy upon Mordecai and the Jewish people. Fasting changes things. Huh? And how about Christ? What does he say? Well, in the New Testament, after Christ expels a demon from a boy, the disciples were unable to exercise, right, to dispel. They inquire, why were we unable to expel this demon? We read in Matthew 17, verse 19. Christ's response, my friends, is telling. This kind of demon can only come out by prayer and fasting. So although Christ gave the disciples the power to remove unclean spirits, they were unable to remove this unclean spirit. If you were to trace this story back to the Gospel of Mark, evidently this kind, quote-unquote, of demon was particularly volatile, casting this boy into the fire and into the water to destroy him. What is the message here? If we receive a request that we find particularly challenging, particularly difficult, that's the kind of intercessory prayer 
that needs fasting. Why? Because fasting changes things. And fasting calls forth the beauty that is, how serious we are in our friendship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.